0: Clinical decision support, known as CDS, it gets a lot of attention. But what about medication decision support? Increasingly, health system leaders are putting this issue front and center, especially as it relates to medication alerts that are integrated into the electronic health record, clinician workflows, even some of the consultant programs that are out there. I'm Todd Urie. I'm the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast network and I consider myself pharmacist number one fan. So when I got an opportunity to really dig into what is medication decision support with an expert organization out there spearheading many of these topics and more, I had to take advantage of it. We'll be talking with Dr. Anna Dover, PharmD and CEO of First Data Bank, Bob Catter, here on the Pharmacy Podcast Nation.
1: This is a special episode of the Pharmacy Podcast Nation, sponsored by First Data Bank, the leading provider of clinical and descriptive drug knowledge that's integrated into healthcare information systems around the world. And now here's our host, Todd Yuri.
0: Hey, Dr. Anna Dover. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me today.
0: You're very welcome. Mr. Bob Katter, uh, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation as well.
2: Thank you, Todd, and we're very pleased to be here.
0: So I'm no um, stranger to First Data Bank, and uh, listeners, if you're not uh, sure of, of who First Data Bank is, then come from under your rock and understand the impact that this organization has uh, on healthcare and patient care. But I'm going to start out with you, Bob. Give us just a high-level view of First Data Bank and the mission right now, especially with today's topic, medication decision support.
2: Uh, Thank you, Todd. I'd be happy to. So First Data Bank has been around, as you kind of alluded to for about, uh, well, a number of years, about 40 years now. And really our primary mission is to bring medical knowledge uh, and in particular, as it relates to medications to the fore to help clinicians make better decisions, uh, ultimately driving better patient outcomes. We power probably, give or take, about 60% of the inpatient and outpatient pharmacy or retail pharmacy uh, applications right now, computer systems that use medication content. And so this topic of medication decision support is obviously something our company is focused on in a big way, and something we feel is going to transition to a newer, more precise, and better methodology.
0: Anna, when I think of data and I think of being able to leverage data to make clinical support decisions for the primary care physician, surgeons, people studying genetics, I immediately think of the pharmacist. And I really wanted to kind of dig into First of all, let's start out with this definition. What is the definition of medication decision support from a pharmacist's perspective?
1: It's funny you you asked that question. I think um, it's important to highlight how a pharmacist perceives it versus a physician. And um, growing up in pharmacy, using early computer systems, you know, there was less decision support around medications than there is now, our, our medical knowledge has grown. And I think as a pharmacist, I always leveraged it as a way to make sure I didn't miss something in my checks, right? It was something that it may help me remember to monitor something, maybe I need to do a follow-up lab, something to help prevent that error from reaching the patient. Um, but it's evolved now and it's, it's much more proactive. So when I think of it as a pharmacist, It's something to help make sure I don't miss something versus um, when a pharmacist would want to intervene on a physician proactively and the way a physician may perceive an alert.
0: You know, I had some experience with Armada Health who became Assembia, which is a specialty pharmacy entity that really helps the specialty disease state sector pharmacists dig down into uh, different uh, occurrences, outcomes uh, for a specific medication. And I'm thinking the expansion of medication decision support for the specialty pharmacy sector and how you fit that decision support into a wor- worker's um, or a user's workflow without really interrupting them, especially with the intensity of uh, specific um, high-cost medications and the seriousness of that disease state. Bob, can you kind of go into how uh, First Data Bank develops that support and workflow and coaching the user um, with that insurmountable amount of data without really disrupting uh, workflow because of how busy um, a pharmacist can be uh, during a day?
2: Yes, Todd, you, you've somewhat kind of implied the answer, by the way you phrased the question. And I think uh, really whether it's First Data Bank or anyone doing medication decision support, I think one of the keys is just what you said. There's so much data available, and that would apply in a specialty workflow, but even for more uh, traditional small molecule drugs as well, that there's so much available data, so many potential alerts uh, we can surface that may uh, present a risk for a specific patient, that I think what's important is that we seek to develop systems that, based on all of the information available about that particular patient at that particular time, it's important that we surface really the the highest risk or the most important alerts or the most important information that is going to really apply to that patient so that the clinician, whether that be a pharmacist or a physician or, or a nurse, can leverage that information in a way that's compatible with his or her workflow. So it hits them at a good time when they're making that decision. And again, surfaces really the minimum amount of information necessary to facilitate a better decision without a lot of extraneous information. And I think that's really the key and really what uh, we need to focus on.
0: A writer, author, Christopher Jason from EHR Intelligence recently wrote just about a couple weeks ago, about EHR-based clinical decision support interventions and how pharmacist and physician collaboration in specific disease states is more important than ever. And when I'm listening to you, um, Bob and Anna kind of talk about this, I think of those alerts and moving alerts to a time where they, where they are relevant in the process, whether that is a nine day into the therapy, 30 days, 60 days, what's happening that you know that you've collected all this data for that same medication, that same therapy. So Anna, can you kind of go into um, when those alerts are relevant, the best person capable of understanding and making a decision about uh, the risks of that medication?
1: Sure, Yeah, I I think um... It's exciting to me because this is something I've I've, um, wanted wanted to work on and I'm excited to work on now. It's when you think about medication prescribing and, and when something surfaces as a safety issue, for example, hyperkalemia or the idea of a patient having a high potassium level, there are many drugs that are given concurrently and are appropriate to treat disease states such as congestive heart. Um, and there is a risk associated with some of those combinations to increase a potassium level, but the risk typically isn't at the point of prescribing because the provider will have already assessed the patient's lab values. So that risk now presents typically later in therapy or once there's a, a change in the patient's um, uh, medical mm-hmm. status. And so that's the most appropriate time to present that alert. but traditional medication decision support has been challenged to do that. It's been very drug focused. It's very much about looking at the medication regimen at the time that something's prescribed, um, moving it out to when it really matters rather than alerting for something that could happen. It's more about alerting if proper monitoring is not in place or later on when the problem actually presents itself. And you talked about who, right? We talked a little bit about when, but who is very important as well. The cardiologist would want to be presented with that alert, right? But maybe not the psychiatrist. And there are many caregivers in the space for that patient. They may want to be aware, but they may not be comfortable adjusting a drug regimen that is managed by a different specialty, right? So it's that balance of communication of a potential concern or an issue versus who's the most appropriate person to address it.
0: Just when I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking of the differences in every case, and how um, customized medication, precision medicine is becoming these um, meaningful, actionable buzzwords that actually mean something. It's not just a, it's not just an exclamation point anymore. And I'm thinking of patient char- characteristics and how that changes things. Bob, can you kind of unpack that based on what Anna was talking about in who was the best person, but now let's move to the patient characteristics and how that differentiates things?
2: Sure. Uh, I think there are a couple of different patient characteristics that I know we're looking at in terms of tuning our alerts, in terms of when they fire, to whom they're fired, et cetera. Uh, One, I think, really important area is lab values. Uh, So we've traditionally looked at a patient's med list, maybe a a problem list, but we haven't really looked at lab values. And those can be uh, genetic-related results. Those can be more traditional labs. But those lab values, not just what they are, but obviously when they were taken, how current they are, can inform a lot of specific issues around a medication. Um, There are also various risk scores. Uh, Those are a little more challenging to gather, but if you have access to the full set of information in the electronic medical record, in some cases the pharmacy system, you can pull together more information related to those risk scores. So those are really two major areas, and, and that's, of course, on top of the areas we've looked at traditionally patient demographic information, the patient's medication list, the patient's problem list, the allergies, et cetera.
0: So the article that I referenced from EHR Intelligence goes into uh, questioning the increasing number of uh, clinical decision support interventions based on point of care alerts and how that algorithm is being tweaked and changed as the data is increased. And I'm thinking of the disease state specific of how many occurrences, um, how many things have happened to the patient during the therapy Uh, what they're feeling at a specific time, pain scores, all of these things that accumulate metrics back that a pharmacist is going to be paying attention to and also going to be flagging if there's an interaction, if there's an allergy, if there's other things happening in place. So in order to kind of go deeper into this, um, Anna, would you kind of talk about leveraging the analytics for better medication decision support when we really start to drill down into this?
1: Yeah, I think analytics is an area of great interest to us and and to me personally as a clinician. I think to have good decision support, you have to have that closed loop. You need to know how things are performing. And very often in isolation, if you were to look at, say, a drug-drug interaction in isolation, that interaction is important. But in the context of the patient and all of the things that you mentioned, um, it may be less important it's that, that risk-benefit piece. And the way to understand and identify patterns is really by evaluation of that alerting environment and, and your patients themselves. So it could be where they're located, uh, the type of specialty caring for them. It could be some of the things Bob talked about with um, you know gender, age, and so forth, um, and, and really, Understanding how things perform in your environment is key to understanding how to optimize them and, and get to that, that better patient outcome.
2: So, Todd, if I could just add one thing uh, on to what Anna's saying as well, because just kind of the, the context of your question kind of said with, at least I think what, what your question said was with more clinical indicators, more factors to take into account, there may be even an increase in alerts And I think that's certainly possible, but I think we're viewing it almost the other way. We believe that the more specific information you have on any one patient, that gives the system, if the system is smart enough, and and I think analytics plays a role to make it smarter over time, but that gives the system an opportunity, we think, to actually reduce the alerts by only surfacing those that are most relevant and most actionable, and, and therefore, Reducing the, the load or the burden on, on the clinician, but, but providing
0: more precise decision support. I kind of get impatient when I think of where um, what we know and how we're using um, artificial intelligence at this point. Some of the simplicity that I'm thinking of is the use of Alexa and, and being able to leverage um, the knowledge of. of the databases to pull up um, a way of, of know, knowing what the patient goes through based on the collective information and being able to predict um, out of 100 patients, if uh, 82 of the 100 patients felt this after the 30th day on this um, you know medication, um, Alexa at 12 p.m. says, you know do you want uh, some uh, peptabismol <laughs> or are you feeling sick on a scale from 1 to 10 how nauseated are you and when i think of that that really plays back into uh medication and in in decision support and how do we use technology how do we use artificial intelligence to put more of the consultancy into the hands of a of a of a pharmacist and physician whereas we could uh, check the box. Checks the box. Check the box through an artificial in, intelligence like an Alexa, for example. What do you guys think of that? How is First Data Bank um, kind of peering into where we are going with uh, tools like like a, like a, the available um, artificial intelligence that we have today?
2: I guess the first thing I'd say is you bring up Alexa. We are very pleased uh, right now to be working with Amazon and Alexa, and we power. Uh, not not something quite as sophisticated as what you're what you're talking about in terms of the future, but we do power right now a service uh, through which Alexa can answer uh, patient questions about their medications. Uh, so we're very pleased to be working with them on that. And we're also looking at kind of voice response type of technology with a couple of other uh, vendors and technology companies as well. So I do think that's an important area for the future. In terms of how we leverage that, I think that's going to take some time. Uh, I think, as you've kind of implied, there's there's a little more uh, uh, discussion about all these technologies and what they're going to do, I think, than, there's, than there are any actual results yet. Yep. And uh, obviously, we want to be very, very careful as we as we go down that path. But I do think the vision you uh, outline, which is that could be another input into the analytics process that Anna alluded to. Uh, a couple minutes ago, in terms of what is the impact of decisions we made in the past in terms of how patients are doing and then factor those things into recommendations the system would make going forward. Anna, do you do you have a, a thought or any, anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I, I think when we talk about AI, in particular in healthcare, any type of machine learning, um, there there are a few key things. One would be in, in my experience, um, it, it's important for clinicians to, you know, trust the computer system but validate, right? And so you wouldn't want someone just responding to an alert uh, because it was there. You'd want them thinking, intentional decision making. And um, a lot of the machine learning models are, are kind of a black box. And so I think as clinicians, I, I know for myself as a pharmacist, that I would have. Uh, I would want to understand the logic behind it. So I think that's something at, at FDB, we try and keep in mind. We want if As we leverage AI and machine learning, which we do have uh, a variety of ways that we're doing that already, we want to make sure it's safe. Uh, nothing is 100% accurate in that space. Um, so we want to make sure that how we leverage it continues to be safe and, and understandable to the clinician receiving anything that we provide from that model, right? And then I think the other piece is the data set, and Bob kind of touched on this with the analytics piece. If you do any type of machine learning, you need to understand the data set and and how universally it can be deployed. There are differences in the way organizations practice medicine and and understanding that nuance, knowing if you have enough data um, and enough varieties of inputs to make it um, a repeatable model, a safe model, is important as well. So, I, I think you touched on it. And Bob touched on it. It's it's an exciting space. Um, it's emerging, but more to come. I think as we as we evolve with it in healthcare IT.
2: And and I just this is Bob again. I want to just kind of circle back to something Anna said and really just underscore it because I think it's such an important point. And that is, we we don't believe that clinicians will be comfortable with the so-called black box, and then. As a result, all the AI work that we're doing, and I I think a lot of other leading companies in healthcare, is really the combination of of human intelligence and AI, artificial intelligence. So we will put things into the engine. We do have data scientists that do that kind of thing, but then we'll evaluate what comes out with our clinicians. So the the, uh, data scientists and the clinicians have a very, very close working relationship. They're always paired on projects uh, in which we go into this kind of thing at first data bank for that very reason. And we think at least for healthcare, that's ultimately going to be a more
0: successful approach i think what's real and what's happening today bob and anna is the fact that this medication decision support can also go that step further and the data can be leveraged to make specific predictions about a patient such as quantifying the risk of opioid addiction and with today's opioid epidemic out there and even though we're in a pandemic it's still a a major it's having major impacts throughout uh, the nation um, that's so important for a, uh, for a pharmacist to realize that there's data available to better assess their patient ongoing. Can you guys expand upon that specifically in, in how um, MDS is, is being leveraged in, in the opioid epidemic?
2: Sure. I'm going to let Anna kind of talk to the specifics other than to say uh, we are partnered with CVS, uh, the large retail Pharmacy, among others, in rolling out uh, our opioid-related content. Uh, that's I think consistent with what you said. That it's it it a establishes a baseline of what's called morphine equivalence in terms of a patient's overall opioid load, uh, load. Excuse me, in their medication list, but then it also is predictive of what that might mean given their specific clinical situation. Anna, do you want to talk about that a little bit more?
1: Sure. I, you know, we, we, this was maybe two years ago, we really made a big push to provide important information about um, opioid risk. So, looking not just at the total morphine milligram equivalents a patient could be receiving, but also looking at co administration risks, things like benzodiazepines, other things that put them at risk for overdose or addiction. Um, and we provide it in a variety of formats for our customers um, and and provide it with um, varying levels of patient specificity depending on the the need. Mm -hmm. So Bob mentioned CVS. We have some other services that use it, and and we also have um, the ability to, um, we have it within certain EHRs as well, which I think is is helpful. When you talk about the analytics side, I think that's important too, uh, As a company, we participated in an opioid task force that was um, funded by uh, CMS to help solve the problem. And one of the great challenges is that data that you talked about, it lives in a lot of different places and how uh, a a PDMP, what what data may be available for us to evaluate that risk because it's more than just the drugs prescribed, it's the previous use, it's the pattern there. So I think, we're providing what we can on the content side. We're exploring how to identify those patients. But one of the challenges in the space is, you know, interoperation between systems or interoperability is can be challenging. And, and sometimes that data gets siloed to help identify that and, and, and really surface it for those at greatest risk.
0: I want the listener to pay attention and you might not see the correlation of this, but I want to kind of push into this and and pull this out but we're going through a major upheaval in how a pharmacist is is being paid for for being a provider and it's going to move away from that prescription based payment to more of a much more of a consultancy value based payment model and when i think of Of this subject, medication decision support, this plays right into it because of adherence. We can show through the data that adherence is a a major issue, $300 billion problem. And and I'm thinking, boy, if a pharmacist has the data at their disposal to start catching things before they become um, serious to the point that there's a readmission, uh, someone goes back into the hospital. What that brings me to is breaking this into these silos of care the hospital setting the long-term care senior care geriatric specialty setting the community setting and i kind of feel bad for those pharmacists out there in the community setting where they're pumping out 600 800 1200 prescriptions a day and they just don't have the time to dig into the data that first data bank is providing and possibly even flagging and how important that that a medication decision support follow-up is in comparison to that closed loop environment where you have a physician, pharmacist, nurse practitioner, therapist team in a hospital setting. So how can we use this data to show the payers? How can we use this data and what First Data Bank has developed to, to show our politicians that if we took the time to reformat our payment structure, we would save our health system millions and billions of dollars, literally.
2: So Todd, you're getting at a couple of questions all at once. I'll, I'll maybe start with the, how we think we're trying to make the data more useful to pharmacists and maybe get at, uh, in particular, that adherence question. You're mentioning the, <clears throat> the policy question, maybe we, we can talk about it uh, after that. that, that in some ways is a little more challenging, but Uh, A couple things. We've spoken about this a little bit before, but for the pharmacist, we're in essence trying to give him or her a much more concise view of what we think the most important risk or risks is that they ought to be evaluating and dispensing that particular medication, as well as providing them tools that they can uh, use with the patient, even ongoing, or, or maybe more accurately, tools the patient can use that don't require pharmacist time. And uh, I'm I'm referring specifically in that latter uh, part to uh, uh, medication adherence information that FDB provides at a a low reading grade level uh, through video, through a mobile platform, et cetera, that can really help the patient understand why uh, he or she is on a specific medication as well as look at their overall set of medications on when to take them uh, through a, a universal calendar, et cetera. So we think you know, better information or more concise information for the pharmacist as well as better tools for the patient. On the policy piece, I think that First Data Bank certainly has a role, but uh, as do really all of us in the health information technology arena, in promoting to policymakers why it's so important that these systems interoperate. And I know a lot of our clients, uh, I'm thinking right now of one of our uh, clients in the retail pharmacy space, a lot of our clients really are making inroads on reaching out to other types of information providers to to try to bring to bear a broader set of information across the ambulatory, the acute, the, the pharmacy setting. So I don't think there's an easy answer to that uh, other than to say we think interoperability among these systems, as Anna mentioned a minute ago, is crucial, and certainly we're going to use the small voice we have in Washington to promote that concept. Um, Anna, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I I think interoperability is a key component of this, having access to that data, and, and patient tools are important. It's been shown that pharmacists counseling with patients can improve adherence. This is well known. Pharmacists don't currently typically get reimbursed for that counseling effort. Um, and and when you think about it it's, it, it's hard to get that adherence data, right, other than how often a prescription's refilled. Um, we don't know when a patient's in the community setting Uh, if they're actually taking their medications versus in the hospital when we're documenting and a a nurse has it there. So I think there are tools and things we can do. Um, The probability of a patient wanting to go in and document every medication administration at home is I think likely low, unless they only take a medication once a day, but those higher risk ones that you talk about for um, at risk for readmission, um, you know, I think there are tools that are out there and promoting as a profession in pharmacy that we can help with adherence with tools like Bob talked about. I, I think that's a key point. Um, how do we as pharmacists help prevent that in the community setting? I I actually worked um, in a retail chain early in my career, and I I know how rapidly you're moving things through, and you and you find the time for the patients. But a lot of times there's they're not interested. So it's it's figuring out how do you open that up? How do you make it more incentivize for pharmacists um, and and really push forward on that adherence side and and see what kind of progress we're making.
2: And Todd, one thing I realized is you also were asking about payment methodologies. And I assume you meant by that kind of a movement away from fee-for-service payment. And again, we're not really out advocating for that that much, although we as a company definitely support that. But I will say the kind of decision support process we're talking about is I think very consistent with that because what we're looking to do is not necessarily support any one kind of utilization decision, but we're looking at the overall patient context. And in some cases that might even mean uh, not uh, doing a particular, uh, you know, utilizing a particular part of healthcare. So I think what we're doing in terms of trying to look at the broader patient context, and then providing concise and time-efficient advice to the clinician, whether that be a pharmacist or physician, again, uh, I think is very, very consistent with payment reform, as you mentioned, in terms of having them do the right thing overall clinically, um, uh, regardless of what that is.
0: I tell you, this this topic we could continue to talk about for hours. I have Uh, so many more questions. I think what I'd like to do is have the first databank team come back. And as a matter of fact, I'd also like to invite um, some pharmacy users and possibly even develop a conversation between physician and pharmacist on this subject, because I think this is incredibly important. And we all know, especially those listening, that uh, the pharmacist role is continuing to evolve and change and medication decision support and the data that First Data Bank is providing is going to be more powerful in, than ever in the hands of a, of a pharmacist that really knows how to leverage and use it. I want to thank our guests. Um, Anna, thank you so much for your insights on, on this subject. And Bob, what, a, what a, a treat that it was to have, um, have you on as well.
1: Thank you, Todd. It's it's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much, Todd. We enjoyed it. You were listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. We were interviewing First Data Bank, Mr. Bob Catter and Dr. Anna Dover. And we thank you so much for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pharmacy Podcast Nation, sponsored by First Data Bank. To learn more on how to partner with First Data Bank, visit fdbhealth.com.
2: Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. If you enjoy the leading podcast network dedicated to the business and profession of pharmacy, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know which channel is your favorite. And remember, the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare.